0: Well, this morning, I was supposed to be in John's Gospel. Uh, That's what you see in your bulletin. Um, I intended to be in John's Gospel, but as my week unfolded, I realized, uh, for a variety of different reasons, I wasn't going to have sufficient time to devote to that text. And so what I'm going to do is preach a different text, a text that I've already preached in a different context. And I'm going to preach it to you uh, this morning. The text will be First Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. I thought it would be appropriate for us um, to take this Sunday to consider this text as it, while it is always um, relevant to us, yet um, perhaps something that we need to reflect upon regularly and let's take this occasion to do so. First Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Let's begin by reading this passage of Scripture together. This is the word of the Lord. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. Over the history of the church, the timing of the second coming of Jesus has been a matter of hot debate, intense controversy. One of the recurring themes that we've seen over the years has been the desire to know or predict the exact date in which it would happen. And many have undertaken that task. So, for instance, in the early 1800s, William Miller, the founder of the Adventist movement, predicted that Christ would return in 1843 or 1844. And he eventually narrowed it down to the specific date of March 21st, 1844. And when that date passed, uh, the movement reset it to October 22nd of the same year. Charles T. Russell, the original founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, predicted that the Second Coming would occur in April 1878. And when that didn't work out, the movement switched it to 1914. More recently, Edgar Wisenhunt, a former NASA rocket engineer turned prophecy teacher, wrote a little book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Could Be in 1988. There were 3.2 million copies printed. More recently, you might remember Harold Camping, a family radio fame, predicted the end of the world in September 1994, and then he changed his prediction to 2011, which, while I was down in Sacramento, that date came and went, and there was a hullabaloo, it made the national news. Tonight, to this morning, I want to address that question, which has been such a matter of... Interest and controversy over the years among many professing Christians. When is the Lord coming back? Is there a way to answer that question biblically? And I think that there is. And I think that our text is one example of it. When is the Lord coming back? Is there a way to answer that biblically? Well, if you look at our text... In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, it begins with the little phrase, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers. And here what we see is another example which happens frequently in these letters to the Thessalonian churches of Paul addressing a specific problem or question that the congregation had. And here the question pertains... To the times and the seasons. And a question about the times and the seasons was a question of when certain events would occur. You remember, for instance, in Acts chapter 1 verse 7, the same language is used when Jesus was about to ascend into heaven and the disciples asked him, Lord, will you at this time Restore the kingdom of Israel. When is this going to happen? And Jesus replied, It is not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In our text, of course, the event in question is mentioned in verse 2. The day of the Lord. Apparently, there was some controversy in the Thessalonian church about when the day of the Lord would come. Now, I know that there is some debate about this. I would argue the day of the Lord here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is simply the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's the event described at the end of the last chapter in chapter 4 when Christ will return to bring final salvation for his people through resurrection and final judgment upon the unbelieving world through the outpouring of his wrath. So for God's people, The day of the Lord will be a day of glory and rest and vindication. And since the Thessalonians were being severely afflicted, well, that question of when that day would come would be very important to them. Perhaps their fixation about the timing of the day of the Lord had led to some error. And confusion on the matter in this church. In fact, we know if you read the second letter to the Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses one and two, Paul mentions that, you know, later on, the problem of when the day of the Lord would come was exasperated in their minds by the fact that some enemies of the church had sent a letter to them, written in Paul's name, telling them that the day of the Lord had already come. And so whatever the case, whatever the reason they're interested in it, it is this issue of the timing of the day of the Lord that Paul decides to address here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So what does he have to say about when the day of the Lord would come, the times and the seasons of this event? The first thing we notice is that he doesn't tell them exactly when it would occur, So notice verses 1 and 2 again. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, maybe he's going to tell us when it will happen. He says, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There's no date. There's no prediction of exactly when it would occur. In fact, there's an implicit rejection here of the desire to identify the exact day or the exact hour that the Lord returned by the fact that he says it will happen like a thief in the night. So, in all the fervor over the timing of the day of the Lord, Paul's showing them that the question of exactly when it will occur is not a question that will be answered. And of course, we know that Jesus had made this same point in his. All of it discourse, which you read in Matthew 24, when he said, "But concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Brothers and sisters, it is right, of course, to have a lively anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, our whole lives, just like the Thessalonians here, ought to be oriented toward that day. But in the midst of our eagerness for the day of the Lord to come, we must never begin to entertain speculation regarding the exact day or hour or year in which it will occur. Now to most of you it's obvious, but it does need to be reiterated and made clear that there is no way to predict from the Bible or from any other method exactly when the Lord will come back. And anyone who claims to be able to do that is teaching false doctrine. What Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 7 really goes for us as well on this subject. It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, that being said, however... It's important to note that Paul does have something to say in this text about the issue of when the day of the Lord will come. And in this, he shows us that there is a biblical answer to the question. So notice again what he says in verses 2 and 3. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So when will the day of the Lord come? It will come at a time when people do not expect. You see, the timing of the day of the Lord must be unknown to man because God has ordained it to be a day of sudden, unexpected judgment upon the unbelieving world. It will come, he says, like a thief in the night while people are blissfully unaware of the danger. In fact, Paul says that we can know, what we can know about the timing of, the Christ, of Christ's return is that it will happen at a time when people think everything is going well. You notice he says, while people are saying there is peace and security... Then sudden destruction will come upon them. Now this, of course, is a page right out of the teaching of Jesus on the subject. You remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 41? He said, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. And then he concludes in verse 44, he says, therefore... You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. See, the point is that the timing of the Lord's return will be unexpected by everyone, the world and the church. We cannot know exactly when it will occur because God has ordained that people not be able to see it coming and prepare for it at the last moment. Rather, the day of the Lord will come when everything seems to be going along quite swimmingly. Thank you very much. People will be living normal lives. They will be getting married. They will be going to work. They will be taking their kids to the park, going to the grocery store, having their car repaired at the mechanic shop, watching the game, if such things still occur, right up until the moment of Christ's return. In fact, people will feel quite secure, Paul says. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, the day of the Lord will come and judgment will be upon them. And once it is upon them, they will not be able to escape it any more, he says, than a woman will be able to escape the inevitable birth of her baby once those labor pains have come upon her. So, You see, concerning the question, when is the Lord coming back? Paul gives an answer. It may not be the answer that the Thessalonians and many Christians might want to hear. It's the same answer answer that Jesus gave. We cannot know the exact time, but we can know that it will come suddenly at a time when we do not expect it. So what does this mean for us? How should it shape our lives? to understand that the day of the Lord is coming suddenly at a time that we do not expect. Well, really, I'm going to spend the rest of this sermon answering that question for us who are Christians this morning because that's what Paul does in the rest of this text. But let me just take some time now to answer that question for any of you that might be here this morning who do not know the Lord. How should it shape your life to understand that the day of the Lord is coming at a time when people will not expect it. Well, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I would urge you to take heed of Paul's words that the day of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of his return to the earth to judge the world in righteousness, will, be, will arrive like a thief in the night. He will come and bring sudden judgment upon the world. So for you, if you're not a Christian, do not be lulled into the sleep of indifference by the perceived sense that you may have of peace and security in life. Remember Paul's words in verse 3. When people are saying peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. It's a great irony, isn't it, that the world of unbelieving humanity has been so concerned about national and political and economic security. Nations build strong militaries and they establish extensive intelligence networks to protect themselves from the threat of hostile forces. They use diplomacy and economic sanctions and military force to try to bring stability and peace to various tumultuous parts of the world. They pass legislation and posture themselves in the global community to secure economic advantage for their countries. But all the while, they've neglected the most ominous and powerful threat of all. They have forgotten the one who laid the foundations of the earth and established the natural order. They've forgotten the one who ordains the paths of history and causes nations to rise and fall. They've forgotten the one who made them in his own image and gives them life and breath and everything every day. They've forgotten the living God to whom they belong as his creatures and to whom they are accountable for all Their wickedness as they live in rebellion against him. So while people think they've established peace and security for themselves, actually, ironically, they've left themselves utterly exposed to the wrath of Almighty God, which is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, according to Paul in Romans 1.18. And so while they're saying peace and security... Jesus Christ will return suddenly at a time when they do not expect, bringing inescapable judgment upon them. And in that day, the mightiest nations will be overthrown in an instant. And vast militaries will be useless. And money and power will mean nothing. Status, rank, it will all be in vain. Nothing will be able to save unbelieving human beings from the judgment of God in the day of the Lord. So friend, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I just urge you to realize that you are not secure. You are not safe. The judgment of God is coming upon the world. When you least expect it, there will be no time to prepare for it last minute. You won't see it coming. It will be like a thief in the night. And once it arrives It'll be too late to get right with God. Ironically, the only reason that it hasn't come yet, 2 Peter 3 says, is because the God against whom you are now rebelling in your unbelief has been patient toward you. And every day, is he held back the tide of his own wrath, waiting for you to repent. But if you do not, one day his patience will run out and you will be lost for all eternity. And so it is urgent that you hear the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning, that God, who made you in his own image whom you have rebelled against in your fallen condition. He so loved sinners like you and me that he's reached out to us in our rebellion to reconcile us to himself. And he's done everything necessary to accomplish that by sending his eternal, divine Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to become a man, to live the life that we had failed to live, fulfilling all righteousness on our behalf. And then he went to the cross and he died the sinner's death that we deserve to die. As we sang tonight, going through hell and down into the grave for all those who trust in him. And now he's risen from the dead and from heaven he has sent out the good news, the gospel. He declares to you right now that anyone who will turn from his sin and put his trust in Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, will be freely forgiven, declared righteous in His sight as a gracious gift. His wrath against your sin will be completely satisfied through the death of Christ His Son upon the cross so that when the day of the Lord comes, you will not perish in it, but will enter into the joy of eternal life in the kingdom of Christ. if you're not a Christian here this morning, I would just urge you, listen, count everything in this life as worth nothing compared to the eternal destiny of your soul and repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior in faith, trusting Him to forgive you of your sins, to save you from the wrath to come, to reconcile you to God. And He will do it. But, What about we who are Christians? How should it shape our lives to know that the day of the Lord is coming suddenly at a time we do not expect? Well, it's this question, really, that Paul turns to in verses 4 through 11 of our text. And I just want to point out two answers he gives in these verses. How should it shape our lives as Christians to know that the day of the Lord is coming at a time when we do not expect? Well, first, he tells us that it should cause us to always be ready for the day of the Lord to come. So look again at what he says in verses 4 through 8. He says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, but you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, in those words, Paul begins by telling us who we are as Christians. And he does it using classic biblical imagery of light and darkness. Remember, he had said that the day of the Lord would come unexpectedly upon unbelievers like a thief in the night. So unbelievers are described then as being like those who are asleep at night with respect to God and with respect to his coming judgment, so that the judgment will come upon them when they are unprepared. But then picking up that imagery of day and night, light and darkness, Paul then contrasts this with the condition of we who are Christians. And he says of us, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Okay. Throughout the Bible, the imagery of light and darkness is used to describe spiritual realities with respect to God. So darkness generally in the scriptures, portrays alienation from God, rejection of God's ways. For instance, Psalm 74, verse 20, it says, Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble And on the other hand, light generally symbolizes in the scripture the presence of God and all that is in line with his true word and with his righteous character. So for instance, Isaiah chapter 2 verse 5 says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And Proverbs 4.18, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Now, you come to the New Testament, and you see that Jesus, because he is God, become a man, was the embodiment of light. So, John chapter 9, verse 5, you remember, we're actually going to see it in our study of John's gospel, that Jesus said of himself, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So, his entrance into the world, it was like The dawning of the morning in the darkness of night. So, Isaiah actually spoke of the coming of Christ in Isaiah 9, saying this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of darkness, on them a light has shined. In fact, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection... What the New Testament tells us is that he actually inaugurated, he began an entire new age in which his kingdom of light began invading the kingdom of darkness which dominates this world in this present evil age. And his kingdom, as it grows and advances is slowly dispelling the darkness of the kingdom of Satan. Just like the light of a new day slowly dispels the darkness of the previous night. You remember Paul actually said in Romans 13, 12, he says, The night is far gone. The day is at hand. And within this paradigm of light and darkness, the New Testament tells us that when we were saved through faith in Jesus Christ when we were united to him, born again of the Spirit, we went from being members of this present age of darkness, citizens of the kingdom of darkness, walking in the darkness of sin and death, we went from that to becoming members of the coming age of light brought about by Jesus, to being citizens of his kingdom of light, to walking in the light of God's presence in truth and righteousness. So we read, for instance, in Ephesians 5, 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Colossians 1, 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Or 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4-8, through our text, Paul is tapping into that paradigm of light and darkness, and he's saying to us, Look, unlike the world, who is living in the darkness of this present evil age. You, believer, are not in darkness. You are all children of light, children of the day. He says, we are not of the night or of the darkness. So brothers and sisters, here we are. We are alive by the Spirit to God. We belong to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of light. We are awake. We're not asleep. We're awake to the light of Christ and his truth. And so what is the implication of that? Well, verse 4. The day of the Lord should not come upon us like a thief in the night. Rather, we should be ready for it to come. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to know exactly when it happens. Like, set your alarm and it'll wake you up right before it happens. No, the point is that We will always be ready. We'll always awake. So that whenever it happens, we will be ready. It's not going to catch us by surprise because as God's people, we will be prepared. So that whenever it comes, we'll be ready for it. Paul uses two other metaphors here to show us what this means practically. Notice, it's the metaphor of sleep and the metaphor of drunkenness. And you see that in verse 7. Paul gives us, first of all, a general truism about life. He says, those who sleep, sleep at night. Fair enough. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. In the same way, those who are part of the kingdom of darkness, those unbelievers who belong to this present evil age, could be described as spiritually asleep or spiritually drunk. They are asleep in that they are dead in their trespasses and sins, ignorant to the truth of Christ, unaware of the spiritual realities that he has revealed. They are drunk in the fact that they spend their lives indulging the desires of their flesh without particular restraint. And in that condition, believers are not ready for the day of the Lord. It's going to come upon them suddenly when they don't expect it and bring eternal judgment. But Paul's point is that that should not be true of us as Christians because we are no longer of the darkness. We're no longer living in the night of this present evil age, but we are now living in the light of Christ and in the daylight of his kingdom and his truth. And so we should be spiritually awake and sober. So notice verse 6. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So in this way, Christians are to be those who are ready for the day of the Lord when it comes, as opposed to the world which will be unprepared for it. So, brothers and sisters, first of all, We must always be awake. And this means that we must always be living in the light of the reality of Christ's return and all that it entails. Final salvation, final accountability to him for how we've lived our life. The second coming of Jesus Christ should not be some distant, dusty concept that we have filed away in the eschatology section of our minds we can't allow for instance the reality that the day of the lord is coming to be constantly pushed back to the recesses of our thoughts by the lesser realities that another day of work is coming and an important deadline is coming And our anniversary is coming and our kids' soccer practice is coming and our vacation is coming and our next mortgage payment is coming so that we stop living for the Lord in light of His glorious coming and simply living for these things in front of us. To do that, you see, is to fall asleep spiritually. But we must stay awake. Our Master is returning And he's going to call us to account for how we have lived our lives as his servants. See, the healthy Christian life has an eschatological edge to it. In other words, it has a future anticipation to it. A sense of the coming of the Lord that motivates us. It gives us a zeal to love with a selfless humility to submit with reverence to God, to forgive people sacrificially, to evangelize with urgency, to endure suffering and trial with faith and perseverance. The Lord is coming at an hour that we do not expect it. So we must stay awake and be ready when He comes. And brothers and sisters, we must also stay sober. This means we can't live our lives like the unbelieving world around us. You know, like Paul describes in Ephesians 2, one and following, living according to the lusts of our flesh. We can't waste our days away with, for instance, just the trivialities of entertainment and amusement and pleasure-seeking, as if life were nothing but a perpetual Disneyland. Nothing but fun and frivolity. We can't be lazy and slothful of this as if there was no urgency, there was no importance to how we live our life. We certainly cannot give ourselves over to sinful passions, sexual immorality, drunkenness, stealing, violence. We can't pursue the empty ambitions of men like Riches and prestige and power and possessions as if any of these things were a legitimate end goal in life. No, no, the truth is that these things are the wine of Babylon. These are the narcotic of the world. And they put us into a spiritual drunken stupor so that we won't be ready for the day of the Lord to come. In fact, there's a sense in which of course, all of us fail in this regard. All of us need to be repenting at times, sobering ourselves up. Lord, forgive me, help me to live soberly before you. But if, in fact, we live that way as a lifestyle ongoing without repentance, then we most likely are proving that whatever our profession We were not truly children of light, but we were walking in darkness. This is what 1 John 1, 6 says. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Instead, brothers and sisters, we have to be sober. And what does spiritual sobriety look like positively? Well, look at verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. How? having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Did you see that old threefold Pauline description of the Christian life? Faith, living your life according to the truths of God's word, rather than your own desires or the ideas of men. Hope placing your hope on the certain promises of the kingdom of God rather than the fleeting pleasures of this life, and love, willingly giving yourself in humble, sacrificial service to others rather than merely seeking your own interests. Faith, hope, and love. Well, in one sense, that in a nutshell is the spiritual sobriety that ought to characterize the lives of Christians. It's not something you can do on your own. It's the fruit of the Spirit. But this is the Christ-likeness which is worked in us by the Spirit of God. The Lord is coming at an hour when we do not expect it. So we've got to be sober so that we will be ready when he comes. So that's the first way it ought to shape our lives to know that the day of the Lord is coming suddenly at a time we do not expect. It should cause us to always be ready for the day of the Lord to come. But just lastly and briefly, it also ought to cause us to wait with a confident hope that the day of the Lord is going to bring our salvation. Knowing that the day of the Lord is coming at a time that we don't expect, it actually should make us Hopeful. Anticipatory. Because we should be confident that in that day, we are not going to perish with the world in his judgment, but we will be finally saved. Our salvation will be consummated. He will complete the work he's begun in us. And this confident hope, it rests on two foundations, Paul says in our text. First verse 9, Paul says, For... God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word destined, it means to appoint. And it indicates God's predetermined purpose. So, as children of light, who are awake and sober, waiting for the day of the Lord to come, we can be confident when it does come, we will be delivered out of God's wrath, because God, in His eternal purpose, has determined to save us rather than destroy us. It's not like it's up in the air and we'll see what he says when he arrives. Second, verse 10, Paul says that we are destined to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, quote, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. You know, our confidence that we will not perish on that final day rests not only on God's eternal purpose to save us, but also in the death of Christ on our behalf. Notice the beauty of what Paul says here. Christ died for us that we might live with him. When he comes again, the Lord Jesus is going to pour out his wrath upon the world. But in our case... The wrath of God for our sins has already been poured out upon him in our place on the cross. We can face that coming day of judgment with confidence and hope, knowing that our judgment day has already happened, as it were, on that rugged cross, on a hill far away, Calvary. And all that awaits us on that day is resurrection. Unto eternal life with Christ. As he put it in the last chapter, when Christ returns, he'll take us to himself, and though then we will always be with the Lord. So, brothers and sisters, when we hear that the day of the Lord is coming at an hour that we do not expect, we don't try to dig a hole and crawl into it in fear. We get excited, not terrified. We have joy because we know that the coming of the Lord will mean for us not final judgment, but final salvation for us who are his people by faith. So how should it shape our lives to know that the day of the Lord is coming suddenly at a time that we do not expect? In summary, we should always be ready for his return, confident that it will be the day of our final salvation. Well, in the history of the church, this question of when Jesus Christ is going to return has been a matter of much speculation and much controversy. But there is a way to answer it biblically. And what Paul tells us is that in this text, we certainly can't know the times and seasons. We can't know the exact day that he returned. And to suggest that you can is dangerous. It's false teaching. Scripture explicitly denies that. But what we can know about the when question is that the Lord will return at an hour when we do not expect bringing sudden judgment upon the world and final salvation to us. And that means that in the meantime we should not only be excited and anticipatory we should also be ready and sober by staying awake and staying sober. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious truth that you've revealed to us in this passage about our great and ultimate hope, the return of our Savior, our King, who has already secured our salvation, begun a work in our lives, and on that day, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ Jesus, will bring it to completion. We long for that day to come, O God, but we know that you are restraining your wrath now. You are delaying in your coming, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we pray that we would be, in the meantime, living, sober, and awake, and seeking to call the lost to repentance and proclaiming the gospel to them. We pray that you'd help us to live this way by the power of the Spirit, We thank you that all our failings are covered by the blood of Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.